So I'll apologize in advance. I still uh, have a little bit of a cough. I'm going to try not to do it too much, but sometimes I can't help it. And you know, it's funny going through this teaching. Um, you know, I, for whatever reason, as I was finishing up my, my studies, you know, and kind of reviewing it, and usually I get up Sunday mornings and I, I kind of re-go through my notes a couple times and kind of pray through it. And, and I just kind of feel dissatisfied, I, I guess you could say, with, I, I just feel like there's so much in Judges chapter 16 that I don't know that we're going to get to it all today. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, we... I'd hope to conclude Samson's story today, but I just don't know. We might go back next week and kind of look a little bit deeper at some of the aspects of his life. But this morning, we're going to begin looking at the final chapter in Samson's saga. Starting in chapters 13, all the way through chapter 15, we saw his, his birth, his younger life. We saw Samson starting to kind of form some bad habits. It makes some poor decisions. And we saw a kind of some poor character traits beginning to develop. And we also saw Samson being greatly used by God. We saw him being used by the Lord to begin to deliver the people from the Philistines. And so we see this a sort of dichotomy between this very carnal fleshly young man and this young man who was very clearly anointed by God to judge Israel. And this morning, we're going to <coughs> kind of conclude Samson's sad story. Judges chapter 16, starting in verse one. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. We don't know how long of a gap it was between the last episode in Judges chapter 15 and this episode in Judges chapter 16. But I believe that it's been a long time. And here's why. In the last verse of chapter 15, it tells us that some Samson judged Israel for 20 years. And as we're going to see in chapter 16 here, this is the very end of that 20 years. And the events recorded in chapters 14 and 15 were at the very beginning of that 20-year period. So it's safe to say that somewhere around 20 years has transpired between Samson picking up the jawbone of the donkey and killing that thousand men and the incident that we're going to look at this morning with Delilah. And we have no idea really what transpired during those 20 years. But it's safe to say that he did something, right? Because he was judging Israel. And as we're going to see over the course of those 20 years, he was a, a, a thorn in the side of the Philistines. And they were excited to kill him. They were excited to humiliate him and put him to death. But here's what I want to draw your attention to in verse 1. 20 years later, 20 years after the events that took place in Timnah, 20 years after the, <coughs> after the killing of the thousand, Samson's character doesn't seem like it's improved, does it? If anything, 
Samson's gotten worse. In the last chapter, he's partying, he's dating unbelievers, he's playing pranks. In this chapter, we find him consorting with prostitutes. And again, Samson, he's down in Gaza. He's in an area that he has no business being in. Last week, he was down in Timnah, and now he's going down into Gaza, further into this Philistine stronghold. And it says in verse two, the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait until the light of the morning and then we will kill him. And so it stands to reason, again, that Samson is still actively opposing the Philistines. They're probably not still all worked up over those events from 20 years ago. Samson has been actively opposing them. And they find out that Samson's here. And so they lay a trap for him. They say, we're gonna ambush him in the morning and we're gonna put him to death. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight, he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in the front of Hebron. So at midnight, Samson gets up and we can infer that he he caught wind of what's going on here. He gets up and he yanks the, the gates of the city out by the post. It says bar and all. And he puts them on his shoulders and carries them up on this hill, right? This would have been a supernatural event. This isn't something that a normal man with normal strength could have done. And it's kind of like, right? He's almost mocking him. It's kind of like, you know, he pulls the gates out, runs up, he puts them on this hill and he's kind of like, nah, 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 you can't get me. That's kind of the attitude that Samson has here a little bit. And it says in verse four, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him, to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So here in verse four, we're introduced to the infamous Delilah. Now, it says that Samson is in the valley of Sorek and he meets this girl and he falls in love with her. And Delilah, the name means devotee. And many scholars think that Delilah may have been a temple prostitute, a a ritual prostitute that worked at the temple of Dagon. And so Samson, he falls in love with her. But as we're going to see as the story begins to unfold, it 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 wasn't a beautiful fairy tale love story, right? It wasn't a mutual love affair. He was in love with her and she was in love with her bank account. That's kind of how it unfolds. 
So Samson, he's hanging around with this girl, Delilah. And the local rulers, the leaders, they take notice of it. And they say, look, Samson, he's here. He's right in Lila. Let's see if we can use this situation. Let's see if we can manipulate it to, to catch Samson. Let's see if we can use this little love triangle to our advantage to finally put an end to him. Let's use her to see if we can figure out why Samson is so strong. And again, as we noted last week, a lot of times we, in our mind's eye, when we picture Samson, we sort of think of Conan the Barbarian with long flowing locks, right? <clears throat> this big mountain of a man. But it's far more likely that he looked like Kip from Napoleon Dynamite than, <laughs> than Conan. And I think we see that evidenced in the, in the text. <clears throat> they say, let's see if we can see where his strength comes from, that we might overpower him so that we can bind him and humble him. See, it wasn't visibly obvious where his strength come, came from, right? If he was this huge jacked dude, they say, well, yeah, that's why he can do that. But I think that it was, he was a small, insubstantial looking guy and they couldn't figure out where this great strength came from. And so they say to Delilah, look, if you can pull this off, if you can get us this intel, we'll each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That amounts to about 140 pounds of silver. So in today's prices, it's about $54,000 each. <clears throat> and we don't know how many of the Philistine lords there were, but the text seems to indicate there were at least a few of them. There were five major Philistine cities in that region. So it's likely that there were five lords here. So this is about a quarter of a million dollars to turn the enemy of her people over to the authorities. Those of you guys who are old enough to, <coughs> to remember 9-11, would you have taken 250K to turn in Osama bin Laden? Well, yes, of course you would have. Most of us would have paid to have done that, right? <clears throat> she says, heck yeah, I, I'd be happy to turn over this, this enemy of my people. And I think we can see in the text, not only did she not reciprocate Samson's love, I think she loathed him. I think she despised him. She was more than willing to turn him over to be tortured, to be humiliated and most likely to be put to death. I mean, she didn't know exactly what was gonna happen, but I think she had a general idea what was in store for Samson. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So this is the first of five scenes in this Samson and Delilah story here. You know, in this scene, you can almost imagine Samson and Delilah, they're sitting on the couch and, you know, she's stroking his hair, running her fingers through his beard, you know, and, oh, Samson, honey, why are you so strong? 
What's your secret? And you know, and that question in and of itself maybe could be overlooked. I mean, that could be innocent enough, right? Sort of like asking, oh, you have such great hair, Samson. What, what kind of conditioner do you use? Right? Okay, whatever. You could pass by that question. But then she asked him, Samson, how can you be bound? How can someone subdue you? <clears throat> now, it's an odd question for your girlfriend to ask you. Especially since she was a citizen of the people that you're currently at war with. Right? Samson should probably have checked out right here. He should have said, you know what? I think I left the stove on at home. I got to run. I got to get out of here. But he didn't. What does he do? He starts playing games with her. Samson said to her, verse 7, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Samson says, okay, here's what you got to do. Go get seven fresh bowstrings. You know, talking about, you know, bows and arrows. And um, make sure that they're brand new, that they've never been used. And bowstrings, incidentally, were made from the, from the guts, usually, of, of animals. And um, that's interesting in light of the fact that Samson, as a Nazarite, was supposed to stay away from dead things, right? So he says, if you go get seven of these bowstrings and tie me up, you know what? I'll become just like any other guy. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. <clears throat> so Samson drifts off to sleep. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of a light sleeper, and I have a hard time imagining anybody being able to tie me up seven times without waking me up. And so I wonder, and this is speculation, but I think it's well-founded, I wonder if there's a little bit of wine involved. I wonder if Samson wasn't a little bit intoxicated. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So Samson tells Delilah what to do. And Delilah, this first round, she believes him. And she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson wakes up <coughs> and just snaps the bowstrings. Like, like a spider web. Like there's nothing there. And it says that the secret of his strength was not known. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. But the soldiers that are lying in ambush, did they just, I mean, apparently they're, they're hiding out in a walk-in closet at this point. Did they just stay there, realizing that their ploy didn't work out? Realizing that Samson had retained his strength? It seems like that's probably the case. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. 
Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. And he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So round two here. This is amazing to me. Samson says to Delilah, or Delilah says to Samson rather, you have mocked me. You have told me lies. Now tell me how you might be bound. Now, is Samson slow? Does he not realize what's going on here? <coughs> Does he not see what she had just done? But Delilah, she, you know, she, she bats her eyelashes, she smiles, she whines a little bit. Samson, please, tell me how you might be bound. And Samson says, okay, okay, I'll tell you the truth this time. Take seven brand new ropes that have never been used. You never walked your dog with them. You never tied up the ox. Tie me up with those. I'm going to be like any other man. And again, in verse 12, she does that. She takes the new ropes and she binds him with them. And again, how does Samson get tied up without waking up? I have to think that he's, again, he sauced up a little bit, Right? One way or another, she gets Samson tied up. Same situation. Same thing as last time happens. Samson, Samson, hurry. The Philistines are upon you. They're coming. And just like the first time, he stands up, you know, he gives a little flex, and the ropes pop off like threads. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom and the web. So this is round three here, right? This scenario has already played out twice. Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. And he makes something up and she believes it and she tries it and it fails. And she comes back to him, Samson, you're mocking me. You're lying to me. You're making me a fool. Tell me the truth. How can you be bound? And Samson says, okay, I'm not fooling around this time. Take my seven golden Fabio locks and weave them into the weaver's loom. I just sort of a point of reference here. As he's referring to his locks, I don't want you to imagine that he's got these glorious flowing Bob Marley dreadlocks. He's most likely got his hair braided into seven big braids. So he sees the, the weaver's loom and he says, weave my hair into that loom and I'm going to be like any other man. Now take note. He's talking about his hair this time, right? Getting a little closer to the truth. 
And remember, Samson's strength, it didn't come from his hair. He wasn't able to perform these miracles because of his glorious locks. He was able to do them because he was supernaturally empowered by the living God. His hair was, it was a symbol of his commitment to God in that Nazarite vow. His hair was symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit resting on his life. But regardless, Samson's getting a little closer to the truth, isn't he? And we see the same thing takes place. And again, we don't know how long of a period this whole series of events is taking place over. It's safe to say that in a minimum, you know, round two takes it, it's at least a day later than round one. Day three is <coughs> at a minimum a day later than round two. It could have been longer between each event. But she says, wake up, wake up, the Philistines are upon you. And he wakes, wakes up and he kind of, whips his hair and the loom goes flying across the room, broken apart. And again, old Delilah, she knew that she had been played. And verse 15, she said to him, how can you say you, I love you when your heart is not, you say I love you when your heart is not with me. You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, <clears throat> and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak, become weak like any other man. So we move into round four of this little saga here. Delilah says, how can you say that you love me when you keep on lying to me? <clears throat> she says, you have mocked me these three times. Why won't you just tell me where your strength comes from? And verse 16 she pressed him hard with her words, day after day. So this incident, at least, was a period of days between the last time when she wove his hair into the womb. And it says that his soul was vexed to death. I don't know why, but that strikes me as funny. Samson, though, he's, he's kind of a baby, isn't he? He's a little bit of a whiner. Samson finally tells her the truth. He says, look, I've never been to the barber. I've never had a haircut. See, I've been a Nazarite since birth, from before birth, in my mother's womb. And he goes on to explain how, how Jesus showed up and, and told his mom to take this vow. And he says, look, if you shave my head, my strength will leave me. I'll be like, like any other dude. In verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. 
And she made him sleep on her knees. And she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground mill in the prison, ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaved. So this time, Delilah is convinced that Samson's telling the truth. And she calls out to the lords of the Philistines and they come money in hand. And Samson, again, he's lulled into slumber and he's laying there, he's asleep, his head is on her lap and she calls the barber. And he comes and he shaves Samson's head. And then she wakes up Samson and it says that she began to torment him. And that word torment can also be translated, she began to humble him. And it kind of seems like being humbled would have been a great torment. She cries out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson's like, whatever. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the same thing I did before and everything's going to be fine. And I think that verse 20 might be the saddest verse in all of Scripture. He said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. The Lord had removed his spirit. He had removed his presence. He had removed his strength from Samson. And Samson didn't even know. We're gonna kind of circle back to that theme as we finish up the story. But they take Samson and they bind him in bronze shackles. And you may remember in scripture that oftentimes bronze is symbolic of God's judgment. And I think it's probably not by accident that they note that his shackles were made of bronze, signifying that Samson here, he's under the judgment of God. But then it notes that the Philistines also gouged out his eyes. That's brutal, isn't it? And they take him to the prison and they make him grind flour. It's interesting to note that earlier it says that he saw a daughter of the Philistines and now he loses his eyes. He killed a thousand men 
with the jawbone of a donkey. And now he's tied up at the mill doing a donkey's work. He destroyed the crops of the Philistines. And now what do we find him doing? Processing their crops. The Philistines, they worship this God called Dagon, the God of grain. And I think it's no accident here that Samson is processing grain. The Philistines are making a point. They're saying that their God, Dagon, was superior to Samson's God. And we find Samson here very much reaping what he had sown. Now the lords of the Philistines, verse 23, gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. So there's this little party taking place, right? You know when your favorite sports team wins the championship, right? And they come home in victory. The crowd gathers and there's a big party. That's sort of what's going on here. They're like, yeah, we finally won. It's been 20 years and we finally won. Our God has given Samson into our hands. And know what they call him the ravager of our country. That's why I think that even though we have this 20-year gap between chapter 15 and chapter 16, right, there's something going on there. Samson is still at work. He's still being used by God to judge the Philistines. And they say, yeah, we, we finally got him. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. And he So in the midst of their party, you know, they're all, they're all drinking, they're having a good time. They say, hey, let's bring out that mighty Samson. Let's see how mighty he is now. Let's see how mighty his God is now. Let him entertain us. Let him give us a little song and dance. And they make him stand between the pillars where everyone could see him in bondage, in shame, humiliated. Now, there in Gaza, archaeologists haven't yet discovered the temple of Dagon. But they have discovered a temple to Dagon in a place called Tel Kassil. And archaeologists discovered at this temple the structure that had a main floor and then it had this sort of mezzanine roof area where people could gather. And the whole structure, it was held up by two (coughs) support columns made out of cedar trees. And it's interesting that, that the description of this temple they found over in this other place so closely matches the, uh, the temple described here in Gaza. And it says in verse 26, And Samson said to the young man who, held, who led him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. 
And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So this little boy, he's leading Samson around. And Samson says, man, all that singing and dancing, it's wore me out. You know, I'm beat. Take me over to the pillars so I can lean against them. Let me, let me take a little breather. And the author notes that it was a packed house. All the lords of the Philistines were present. A lot of the people in the area were there. There were some 3,000 people, it notes, that were on the roof. Right? This is a, this is a large structure. And they're all there watching Samson be entertained. Look back at verse 22 again. It says, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. It's not by accident that that verse was included in the text. Again, Samson's hair is symbolic of the strength that the Lord had given him. It's symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit resting on him. And scripture notes that his hair started to grow out again. I have to think that if I was a Philistine Lord and I knew that Samson's great strength was removed when he had his head shaved, every morning when I bought him breakfast, He'd be getting his head bicked. We'd be, every morning, that's what would be going on. But they didn't notice. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. So Samson, he prays to the Lord and he asks for strength one more time. And then he pushes these two pillars down collapsing this great temple upon himself and killing everyone else who was inside. And they note that he killed more people in his death than he did in his 20 years as a judge. Two things that I want to touch on as we close, and don't get too excited. We've got a few more minutes here. First, why did Samson tell Delilah the secret of his strength. Especially after she had already proven three times that she was willing to do exactly what he said in order to, to weaken him. 
Why did Samson continue down that path? Number one, in the words of Forrest Gump, I am not a smart man. Right? It doesn't seem like he was that bright, right? But number two, I want you to think about this for a minute. Samson was a Nazarite from birth. No touching dead bodies, no drinking wine, no cutting of the hair. Right? Those are the requirements of the Nazarite vow. And we can deduce that Samson was clearly already drinking a fair bit in his life. We saw it back in Timnah at his wedding. We found him playing around in the vineyard. It seems like here in the incident with Delilah, he'd been drinking. Second, he wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies, but we found him messing around with that dead lion in the last chapter, touching the, the jawbone of a dead donkey, piling up heaps of men, touching dead bodies there. And when he broke his vow with the wine and with the dead bodies, do you know what happened? Nothing. God didn't strike him with lightning. The earth didn't miraculously open up and swallow him whole. Nothing happened when he broke those commandments. And so I'm pretty sure that Samson's thinking, you know, if I cut my hair, it's going to be the same thing. Nothing's going to happen to me. God is sort of winking at my sin. After all, I am Samson, the judge of Israel. I think that Samson was willing to reveal his secret because he just didn't think that anything would happen. You know, we often quote 2 Peter 3.9, right? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re reach repentance. And when we read that verse, we tend to focus on the second part of that verse, that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And that's a great verse. And it's a wonderful bit of encouragement. But don't lose sight of the first part of that verse. The context here is the judgment of God. And Peter says, the Lord is not being slack, as some translations say. <laughs> He's not slow regarding his promise of judgment, but he's being patient. But eventually, Peter goes on to say, that patience will run out. And eventually, if you don't repent of your sins, judgment or discipline will come. And that seems like the case here. The Lord showed Samson grace over and over and over. He gave Samson time to repent over and over. And Samson, he just didn't get it. He took that lack of being smitten by God as God not caring, as God winking at his sin. And he was wrong. Eventually, the Lord removed his presence from Samson. He removed his spirit from Samson. 
as we saw in verse 20. And the saddest part is that Samson didn't even notice. He was so far from where he should have been, so far from intimacy with the Lord that he didn't even recognize it when the Lord left him. He was so calloused spiritually, so cold-hearted towards the Lord that he didn't even recognize his absence. Now, Samson's life is given to us as a cautionary tale, not a how-to manual. I hope you recognize that. Right? Hopefully we can read his story We can look at his misadventures and we can learn from them. Hopefully we learn not to toy with sin, not to play with things that we have no business playing with, not to let our hearts get so calloused that we no longer hear the voice of God. Now, just to be clear, we as New Testament believers, right? We have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us and his spirit is not gonna leave us. His spirit is not going to depart from us. But when we sin as Christians, that sin, it builds a barrier between us and God. Sin blocks our access, our our communication. Sin saps away our spiritual strength, right? Sin very often inhibits the power of God from flowing through us. Now, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I've sat across from someone and they say something to the effect of, pastor, can I, can I do this or is it a sin? Can I smoke this or can I drink this? Or can I watch this? Or can I listen to this? Or can I date this person? And the question is this, how close can I get to the fire without my hair igniting? Right, that's essentially what they're asking. How close can I get to the edge of the cliff without falling off? And I think that most of us by nature, that's kind of how we are but we're asking the wrong question, aren't we? We should be asking how we can stay as far away from sin as possible. We should be asking how we can be as holy and as righteous as possible, how we can be as much like Jesus as possible. The second point I want to make is this. Unquestionably, Samson screwed up. Samson made a major mess out of his life. And we find him here at the mill, blind, his eyes have been poked out. But what does it say? His hair began to grow again. He's bound, he's chained. But his hair began to grow again. He's humiliated. He's being mocked by the Philistines. But his hair began to grow again. 
He had disobeyed the Lord. He had failed. He had fallen short of his calling. But his hair began to grow again. It's not by accident that that detail is included, that his hair began to grow again. Because as we noted, his hair was symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. It was symbolic of his calling being restored. And finally, Samson here, he calls out to God. He repents of his sins. He finally recognizes his failures. And what happens? The Lord uses him. In fact, the Lord uses him in a greater way than he had ever used him before. Now look, when we look at Samson's life, be honest, it's very easy for us to write Samson off, isn't it? It's very easy for us to look at his failures and to judge him. I mean, he did some good things, but overall, his life appears to have been an abysmal failure. It's easy for us to judge Samson and just move on. Except for one thing, that pesky little Hebrews chapter 11. Right, the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 11 lists Samson as one of the heroes of our faith. Lists him as a great man of faith. How does that even work? How is Samson a hero of our faith? Look at his life. Wine and women and a wrecked life. I remember what it says at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 regarding Samson along with the other heroes of the faith. It says in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. How is it that God's view of Samson's life is so different from how we view Samson's life. We mostly view Samson by his failures, but the Lord viewed Samson based on his victories. All we see is everything that Samson did wrong. And all the Lord sees is everything Samson did right. And this is an important principle, church. And let me be clear, this pertains to the people of God, not the world at large. It pertains to those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, the Old Testament saints were saved in the exact same way we are, by the blood of Jesus Christ. The only difference is perspective, right? We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and we look back to the cross at Calvary where they, from their perspective and faith, looked forward to the Messiah. They didn't fully understand it, but they looked forward to the cross of Calvary and were saved by faith. It's the same blood. It's the same Jesus that saves us 
that saved them. And so when the Lord sees us, he sees us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, all he sees is Jesus. He sees us as perfect, as holy, as righteous. He doesn't see our failures, our sins, our shortcomings. All he sees is our victories. The last thing as we close, we sort of have this idea of the kind of person that the Lord wants to use. And a lot of times, I think we create in our own minds this image of, of who God is and how God is allowed to work and who God is allowed to use. But as we look at Scripture, we see that the reality is that God is a lot different than we thought he was. And he works a lot differently than we expect him to work. He uses people that we would not expect him to use, right? And we might not articulate it this way, but in our minds, we sort of expect that God only uses whole people, right? People who are squared away, people who have all their ducks in a row, people who all their T's are crossed and all their I's are dotted but that's simply not true. Look again at the list of people in Hebrews chapter 11. That is a list. I mean, there's some great guys in there, some godly men, but a lot of the people in there are broken, messed up people. People whose lives were just in shambles. But do you know what? They believed God and like Abraham, it was accounted to them as righteousness. And I've shared this many times before, but I love this so much. To my knowledge, none of the shortcomings and failures and sins of any of the Old Testament saints, none of those things are recorded anywhere in the New Testament. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind to think about that? In the New Testament, whenever it's talking about the Old Testament saints, it only records their successes and their victories. It doesn't record their failures. Does that not cause your spirit to soar? God, he doesn't remember our pasts. He doesn't remember our failures. He doesn't remember our shortcomings. And if he doesn't remember them, why do we get so hung up on them? On our failures and on other people's failures. God can't use me. I did this. I was this. I failed in this area of my life. Yep. You did. But you know what? You're forgiven. Once you repent, those things are gone. As far as the east is from the west, 
So far has he removed our transgressions. And I think there might be some here this morning who need to hear this. You are forgiven. You are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away and all things have become new. So quit wallowing in your past. Quit wallowing in your failures. Get up, put your big boy pants on, and serve God. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this warning and this encouragement that we find in Scripture. And we pray that you would help us to to learn from both of these things, Lord to abandon our sins and to move on, Lord, and to walk wholeheartedly with you. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.